Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he had finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Up to this point, Naomi has been a rather passive character. Things have happened to her. That's going to change in this chapter. Her husband and sons died. She moved out of, out of Israel, perhaps at the behest of her husband. She moves back. It's Ruth who takes the initiative to go out to Boaz's field. Well, now Naomi is going to take some action. Uh, or rather, she's going to get her daughter-in-law to take some action. Remember, these are impoverished people. They do not have their husbands, or in Ruth's case, her father-in-law with them any longer. They do not have the land that they owned because they had sold it when they moved to Moab. But now they're back. And Ruth has been working in the field of this man, Boaz. And it says there that Boaz is their relative. This is not just saying, oh, he's a, he's a cousin or he's a family member. This means he was part of their clan. And this means, as we read in chapter 2, verse 20, he was one of their redeemers. Their redeemers. We're going to talk about this in great detail next week. But I want to give you a little sense of what this means and why this was important so that we can understand the story today. If he was a redeemer, and the Hebrew word there is goel, it's often translated kinsman redeemer, because it, it means technically kinsman or relative, but it's, it's broader than that. It carries the idea of redemption with it. This means he could legally repurchase their land and give it back to them, as well as raise up offspring for Ruth's dead husband. This is actually taking two biblical principles together that apparently, as this book gives us commentary, were tied together. So in Leviticus 25, 25, it reads, If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest goel, redeemer, shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So in Israel, you had designated property that belonged to you in perpetuity. But if you were falling on hard times and you wanted to sell your land, you could do that. But this was considered very shameful and an act of last resort to no longer have your land. I mean, we can understand that just from a, a standpoint of financial assets. You don't have the thing that's going to make you money any longer. But hard times would come. Maybe you had to move to Moab during a famine, as it says here. Well, what are you supposed to do then? Well, the law provided for these people who were the goel, the goelim, that were to buy this land back. That's what redeem means, to buy it back. That I could come, purchase the land from the one you sold it to, they're not allowed to say no, and give it back to you. This also was the case if you had to sell yourself or any of your children into indentured servitude or debt slavery, we might say. That the person didn't get to say, well, no, I don't want to sell. It's like, well, you have to, because the land is supposed to stay with all the sons of Israel. We also tie together Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6, where it says, if brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. 
So it's a very similar idea. This is called leveret marriage. It comes from the word levir that describes this whole process. It means brother-in-law. That if you are married to a woman and you die without having any sons to carry on your family name, your brother would come and take her as his wife, have a son with her, and that son would not be known as your child, be known as the child of the man who had died, so that his name never passed out. Both of these things are concerning legacy. They're concerning inheritance in the promised land of Israel. Well, this is exactly the situation in which Naomi and Ruth find themselves. They need a goel. They need a kinsman redeemer to buy the land back that they had sold, but also to raise up children for this family that was about to die out. And here's Ruth working in the field of Boaz, who is one of their redeemers. So when she says he's our relative, this isn't an incestuous thing. This means he's part of our clan, and he has legal claim to redeem this land for us. So Naomi decides to resolve the situation. Because last chapter, we saw Ruth and Boaz really hit it off. They really liked each other. He's giving her all kinds of extra food and stuff. And hey, come sit with me, sweetheart. Don't, don't go anywhere else. You just stay right here, okay? And that way I can see you every day. Well, we leave the end of that chapter, and Boaz hasn't really done anything about this. And we're kind of like, wait a minute, so isn't he going to help them out? Well, Naomi kind of felt the same way. And when they come to the end of the wheat harvest, where they maybe won't be able to glean and see him as much anymore, she goes, all right, it is time for us to take action. So she tells Ruth, go wash yourself, anoint yourself, so that's perfume. We, if it was our culture, you might say, put your makeup on. And then put your raiment on. Go get dressed in your finest clothes. It is probable here that what she's telling Ruth technically is, it is time to formally end the season of mourning that you have been in for your husband. That it is time to let everybody know you are available again. It's time to stop wearing all black or whatever they would have done, sackcloth maybe, or certainly not anointing themselves out of grief. She goes, it's time to let Boaz see that you are a woman who is available. And she's going to send her to Boaz to try and induce him to perform the duty of a goel. Now, Boaz was a righteous man, and we know this, that he's only spoken of positively. But it's going to be the influence of these good women that is going to save the day. And so that's our title today, is The Influence of a Good Woman. And uh, this story has all kinds of humor in it, but really what it amounts to is it's these ladies are going to use their, or technically just one of their, Ruth's womanly charms to get Boaz to do the right thing. And that that is the model of what God holds up for a godly woman. That she is to be influential towards righteousness for her family. It is very hard for me to overstate the damage that feminism and other gender theories have done in the church and how we think about the relationships between men and women. And it's very easy to come out, and in previous generations, folks would do this, and they would say, look, we've learned some good things from these people, but we wanna, don't want to go too far. I think culturally we're at the point where we need to just say, there's nothing worth salvaging from these ideas. The Bible teaches you everything you need to know about what it means to be a good man or a good woman. I, I think that's true for every idea. It doesn't matter what so-and-so has to say about any subject. If the Bible talks about it, it's sufficient for us to learn. Because what it has done is it has taught women in the church, and men as well, that dependence is somehow shameful. That if you are dependent upon somebody else, that if you are there to serve somebody else, that that means that you are lesser than. And that if you do not have your own so-called accomplishments or your own so-called achievements and, and money and status, that you, he's somehow better than you. 
which is not what the scripture teaches, but we've allowed unbelievers to get in the ear of our families and tell us that that is the case. The Bible actually teaches us something else. Because how it's often portrayed, well, the Bible just tells women to shut up and stay home and don't do anything. Oh, really? You, you should read the rest of this chapter with us this morning. This drives a much more active role for wives and women's influencing, women's, women, <laughs> to, <laughs> to influence their families towards righteousness, towards salvation in myriad different ways. And Ruth is the gold standard for female behavior in the Bible. So as we read this, it's funny, but it's also righteous and holy what takes place here. So let's look at verses 6 through 9. So she went down to the threshing floor, got all dolled up, just like her mother-in-law said, and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? <laughs> That's actually very stark in Hebrew if you read that. It's like, ah, who are you? <laughs> she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. The threshing floor. This is the place where they would take the grain that had been harvested. They'd have the long stalks with the heads on the top. And what they would do is they would thresh it. They would do this with flails or mallets sometimes. Or usually you'd get an ox or some other large animal to walk on the heads of grain. This would cause the husk to break open and the seeds to fall out. And the way you sorted this out was a process called winnowing. You would take a pitchfork or something. You would toss it up into the air. And if you did it at a windy place, at a high place usually, the wind would blow the husk away, blow the light straw away, but the heavier seed would fall to the ground. If you've ever seen Cecil DeMille's Ten Commandments movie, there's a scene early on in Egypt where they go to the granary and you can see them winnowing and threshing the wheat, tossing it up into the air while the ox is walking around. That's what they did. Now, this would have been a time of great celebration because the harvest is over and all the men would get together and they would celebrate all the hard work they did. Hey, harvest is done. Now we can rest and, and have a nice off season, you might say. And it says that Boaz's heart was merry. He had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry. This is a biblical phrase that usually describes the state of a person when they have indulged but not overindulged in wine or strong drink. Psalm 104 verse 15 tells us that God gave bread to strengthen the bones of man and wine to make glad his heart. So there is a, a biblical celebratory use of wine that is used in the Bible that Jesus himself partook in, in the wedding at Cana. But then the overindulgence is called drunkenness, and the Bible warns us very strongly against that. The point we're getting here is Boaz has just come from a big party, and he's feeling pretty good. So he goes and he lays down. Is this a little funny? It's supposed to be a little funny. <laughs> He goes and he lays down on the heap of grain. Why is he falling on the heap of grain? I read somebody who said he passed out drunk. No, no, that's not what he says. What he's doing is they would have slept by the heaps of grain as they had just been threshed and winnowed to protect them so that somebody doesn't come in and try to steal their harvest. But she comes in. <laughs> so she's watching from a distance. I don't know what, if she was in a tree or what she was up to here, but <laughs> she watches him sneak off. She sees where he lays down, and then Ruth tiptoes to where he is sleeping, takes his blanket, lifts it off his feet, and the word for feet actually just means lower half of his body, so it would have been more than just his feet, perhaps, and lays down at his feet in his bed. Yeah, I hear the chuckles going around. You're supposed to chuckle. 
It's supposed to be exactly how you think it's supposed to be. It is impossible to avoid the romantic and the sexual undertones of this passage. In fact, you see it even stronger in Hebrew because it uses many times words that are used in other passages of Scripture as euphemisms for sexual intercourse. It says that she uncovered him. That's a common word that's used. That she went in. You've read that he went into his wife. That's another common word. That she knew several times that you will know the place. Knowing somebody is another, another euphemism for that. So if you're reading this to a Hebrew audience at the time, they would have been kind of snickering and chuckling. So she went in and uncovered his feet. They would go, oh, you can't say that. And then even today when we don't get that, she uncovered his feet and climbed into bed. This is supposed to be romantic and a little, maybe makes some of us uncomfortable. But I want to say this. You can't be unsettled by this. This is the Bible. Oh, the Bible is inappropriate. No, your perception of what is and is not inappropriate is what's inappropriate. In case you're not sure about that, go read the Song of Solomon again. They would have sung that, and we're going to study that in the church. You know, there's somebody, well, that kind of needs a content warning. No, not really. The Bible celebrates the romance and the love between a man and a woman, and that's what we see here. So when Boaz sees her, it says he was startled, and it actually says he twisted. And his, you ever, like, you know, gets freaked out in the middle of the night, and you kind of twist real quick, what is this? He looked down, and he sees her there. Who are you? And she said, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Spread your wings. Wings can also mean your garment, or your robe. So you see the picture here, right? She goes, so spread the robe that I just uncovered over me, which is supposed to be intended as come under my wings. And, you know, we see that today. I'll take you under my wing and take care of me. But it's also take me into your bed. Not right now, but I want you and I to have a relationship like this. That's what she's saying to him here. This is what we will call theologically flirtatious persuasion. Is that bad? It most certainly is not, because it's in your Bible. This is a happy story to make us smile. It's like a romantic comedy, a spiritual romantic comedy. We're like, oh, is she really doing that? Oh, yeah, she is. And what do we learn from this here? I gave a very similar message when we were talking about Samson and Delilah, except now we get to invert it. You might say that Ruth is the anti-Delilah, or Delilah is the anti-Ruth. God created women to be a help and an inspiration to the men in their lives. Certainly not just to their men, but that's more what this story is talking about here, right? In the book of Genesis, when God created Adam, it says it was not good that he was alone. And Adam might have said, amen, hallelujah to that. So God created a woman and brought her to him to be his help me, to be his companion, to be alongside him. And a woman's romantic charms are a key component of that. We can be very stuffy in the church when we try to resist, positively try to resist creeping sexual immorality from the world, that we start to put things that the Bible does not condemn into that same category, or we get awkward talking about them. That God created women to be a help and an inspiration for the men in their lives and for their families. Let me read Proverbs 31. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we all know the story of the virtuous woman. Proverbs 31, I'll read verses 10 through 12, and then I'll skip down and read verses 26 through 30, where it says, an excellent wife who can find. I've seen a few people online talking like that. <laughs> an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. 
She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Down to verse 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. One of these days, of course, we'll get to Proverbs 31 and do the whole thing, but what's remarkable about it is the active nature of this picture that is painted of a virtuous woman. That in God's economy, she is submissive to her husband, but she is incredibly influential and active in that relationship. And that story, she's out there buying and selling. She's taking care of the house, which doesn't just mean cooking and cleaning. That's part of it. But she's also looking to say, maybe we can buy some more land and add that onto the house. Maybe we should hire some servants to come and take care of things. Where can I economize and make sure that we have money to do these sorts of things? So that both the husband and the wife are together working to lift up the family. He's going out there making the money and, and working in the fields as it would have been then, working the job as we see it. And she's at home working on the domestic front to try and lift all that up. It's an incredible partnership. And you can see there when it says she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. That she's speaking wise words and her husband and her children both recognize that her instruction and her wisdom are worthwhile and worth listening to. That's how a Bible portrays a godly woman, which is what Ruth is doing here. The curse of sin, however, has damaged this relationship. It has rendered the influence that a woman has over a man to be dangerous. We often talk a lot about the danger that men have when they're walking in sin towards their wives and how they can physically overpower and even abuse their wives. Well, the same thing is true in the way that a woman has influence over a man, which is usually less physical and much more mental, emotional, or any other way. Genesis 3.16, God told Eve, because you have done this, because you resisted the voice of your husband and instead listened to the serpent, isn't that interesting? The very first sin was a woman refusing to submit to the words of her husband and him following along. Rather than the husband leading and the wife following, it was the opposite of that. And that's what got us into this mess. The Lord says, because of this, your desire shall be against or for your husband, but he shall rule over you. He says, Eve, because you have done this, sin is going to take root in your heart where you're not going to want to submit to your husband anymore. And you're going to want to compete with him and then strive with him and have your way over him. But he says, but I'm not changing my rules, Eve. He shall rule over you. So what this has led to is this amazing influence that a wife has over her husband or even over the men in her life that can now, you might say, the superpower can be used for evil. When there's laziness, we talked about the Proverbs 31 woman does not eat the bread of idleness. When a woman is lazy, Hosea chapter, uh, no, sorry, Amos chapter 4 talks about the wives in Jerusalem, or Samaria, I think it was, who were inducing their husbands to go out and oppress the poor because he said, you are the fat cows of Bashan. That's a prophet speaking to the women of his city. How do you like that? And he actually uses this whole meatpacking analogy if you follow it all the way through. And I'm going to open up the gates. I'm going to send in the butchers. They're going to carve you up and put you on hooks and slide you out the door because you are never satisfied. You're constantly telling your husband he's got to get you more, 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 and you're pushing him to do things that he shouldn't be doing. Laziness. Selfishness as well. The idea that I don't care about us. What about me? 
What about me? And now all of a sudden it's become a competition where there are even wives and women that will gain an advantage over their husband to where he's not working for them any longer. She's not serving him anymore. Everything is to serve her. Vanity also. Vanity can be used to where those, this influence that should be reserved for that marriage relationship begins to go outside the marriage relationship in order to satisfy a person's ego or vanity. Eve did this. Delilah was the key example of this, right? Or Jezebel, when it says that Ahab was wicked, but it was Jezebel who incited him to do all of those wicked things. This does not get our men off the hook, by the way. We've talked about this before, that men need to know how to lead their wives, not allow these things to go on. But it can be very, very difficult for a man who has control and authority and wisdom everywhere else. But when he comes home, he just doesn't know how to handle this. It can be bad. But when used properly, when a woman uses the influence she has properly, there is nothing better. You look at the story of Abigail. I think it's a great example of this in the Bible, where David was about ready to kill her husband because he had mistreated him. It's a whole story we'll get to before too long. And David gets his men to take their swords and go after this dude. Abigail rides out to David. She brings a They were asking to help him out with a feast. She brings the feast with her, falls on her knees before David and says, look, I know that my husband is foolish and he's acted foolishly. Will you please, please just let this one go? So she's being influential, first of all, for her husband and protecting him against his own stupid decisions. But she's also coming to David, who's not even her husband, and influencing him with her wisdom and her shrewdness to not do something that he was going to regret. Abigail ended up becoming one of the wives of David. Speaking of the wives of David, Bathsheba does this later on in David's life. Bathsheba, who, you know, we always think of the horrible story where her husband was murdered and David brought her into his house. But uh, later on in life, when David's other son was trying to take the throne, rather than Solomon, her son, she went to David and worked up this whole scheme to make it so that, hey, uh, my son is supposed to be the king. And David, who had a very hard time saying no to his kids, was led to do the right thing by his wife. So you can see, you get a wonderful partnership here that a man like David, with all of his strength and all of his ability, sometimes had a hard time doing the right thing or even knowing what the right thing is to do. He's got all this strength and doesn't know where to aim it. So what does he have? He has a good, wise woman in his life who knows how to talk to him. Is this New Testament biblical or is this just my theory? It's not. 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Peter writing to unbeliever, or wives who are married to unbelieving husbands in the church, he says, what do you do? Submit to those men. And by the way you treat him, respectfully and submissively, with all the love in your heart, make the gospel so attractive to him that without anybody preaching to him, he'll say, I need to know what it is that transformed your life. So you can apply that all throughout our lives. That women, you are not just to be sit there and shut up and don't say anything. You have influence over your husband. And you are to use that influence for the glory of God and for the kingdom, to help him, to help him do what he's got to do, to give him strength when he lacks it, to correct him sometimes when he's wrong. I'm going to give you five quick ways that this is done. Uh, you know, I'm certainly not the expert on how a woman should influence her husband, but I think the word gives us some examples here. Number one is through conversation. These all rhyme, so you're welcome. Number one is through conversation. Through your wise and your kind words to your husband, you can 
help him and lead him and influence him to do the right thing. Just sitting back and pouting and hoping he does what you want is no good. Here's a good marriage tip for you. If you haven't talked about it, you have no right to be angry about it. Well, he knows what he did. Maybe not. Maybe not. Oh, she knows what she meant by that. Maybe she doesn't. Maybe we should phrase it, maybe she doesn't realize how that affected you. So conversation, ladies. Speak to him. This is what Ruth is doing. She's having a conversation. It's a, you know, set up in a, in a way that he'd be more prone to listen than usual, maybe, but they're having a conversation. Number two. Number two is emotion. Now, I don't know if every guy is quite like me, but I have a hard time sorting through my emotions from time to time. And by that, I mean, I don't even really know what I'm feeling. So they're like, how do you feel about that? I'm like, I don't know. Are you sad? Maybe. And then I do something to like, let's look, let's look at the facts. Let's make a list and see if I'm sad. And, you know. that some, and sometimes, you know, men who are, are kind and sweet, the, the kind of man you want in your wife, ladies, maybe there are times where he has been hard done by and he ought to be motivated and provoked to do something about it. But because he's so kind and he's so forgiving, he doesn't understand that he's actually ought to be offended or ought to be angry about something, or that he is angry about something, and you help him sort through that. Now I got passed up for promotion again. Are you serious? Oh, yeah, but it's no big deal. Honey, it is a big deal. Aren't you upset by that? Well, a little, but you know, it's okay. But you've worked so hard. I have worked so hard. And, and he told you three times. Yeah, he has told you. Honey, you can't keep working that job. Can't you find something else? Yeah, I will find something else. Is that manipulation? No, that's you using where you're strong to help him where he might not be as strong. Guys do this all the time, sometimes to the chagrin of our wives, where you bring us a problem, we go, I have a solution. <laughs> now, do you need solutions? Yes, you do. But you don't always want them in the moment. What does that mean? Is that guys are very tactical, guys are very logical, and they can use that to the, to the team's advantage. You, likewise, tend to have more emotional insight than he does, so use that to help him. Number three is affection. This is what we see here in Ruth chapter three. This is practical and yes, up to and including sexual displays of love for your husband. There are few things more shameful to a man when his wife begins to withhold affection from him. Did you know that 1 Corinthians 7 tells us that husbands and wives do not have the right to withhold themselves from each other sexually? You don't have the right to do that. Well, it's my body. The Bible says, no, it's not. That The woman's rights to the woman's body are her husband. That's so patriarchal. Oh, no, no, hold on. It also says the husband does not have right to his body, but the wife does. That together you are to make sure you are protecting against sexual immorality and against feelings of distance and against feelings of separation. But also, ladies, this isn't always sex. This can be a hug. This can be a hand on a shoulder. This can be a kiss on the cheek. This can be, I love you so much, and here, let me show you why. That making sure, well, I wish, I've heard this a lot, I wish my husband was more romantic. We don't know how to do that, ladies. We don't know what we're doing. You know, because every guy in here has tried to be romantic and had it completely fly back in his face before. Not with any of you ladies, I'm sure, but like, flowers, you know I hate flowers. Like, I could have sworn you said you liked flowers. <laughs> But ladies, you can do this for your husbands too. You can, and sometimes, well, he doesn't want, I don't want to just tell him what I want. It'd be a lot easier if you did. <laughs> just come out and tell. Well, that doesn't seem very romantic. 
Well, you can either be upset that it's not going the way you want, or you can have a an awkward conversation. Laugh your heads off and talk to each other about these things. Affection. Number four is action. This is Proverbs 31 women. Do your part to contribute. And this isn't just through money making, although that can be part of it. But what is the goal? What are we reaching for as a family? What are we trying to do? Are we trying to raise these kids? Then ladies, don't back off and just let them do what they want. Take action. Are we trying to get this house ready to sell it? Well, don't wait for him to come home and do everything. You take care of it. Are we trying to throw ourselves into the church? Are we trying to throw ourselves into the ministry? Then don't just say, okay, you go do that. I've got these things here. You come out and help. And I realize a lot of these things could be flipped around just as easy, right? But what is this talking about? This is talking about a wife's, wife helping her husband. And number five, devotion. Devotion. Don't ever, women, let your husbands think that your love and commitment to him is conditional. Don't ever let him think that there may come a day where... I'm going to no longer care for you and walk away. People will do this, husbands and wives both, where they will say, yeah, I love you a lot, but you know, here are, here are the terms under which that I won't, I won't stay. That's not biblical. The Bible tells us to give ourselves, sacrifice ourselves for one another. Ladies, if your husband knows that you are with him no matter what, he does not care what's being said to him at the job. It's like a boxer, gets out into the ring, gets pounded a few times, and he sits back down, and then what happens? Coach comes up, gives him some water, you know, wipes the blood off his face, gives him a little bit of pep talk. All right, buddy, get back out there. If you are there doing that for him, then he can do the, anything. He can conquer the world. Why do you think football teams have cheerleaders on the sidelines? Because it makes the guy say, well, I can't mess this up. All the ladies are watching. <laughs> but guess what, ladies? He doesn't need a bunch of them. He just needs one. This needs you. And if you determine in your heart, I'm going to be that for him, that's more attractive to man, to a man than an attractive woman is, physically and outwardly. And there's a lot of men nodding in here, ladies, in case you doubt what I just said. You have amazing influence, ladies, which calls for real responsibility. So use your powers for good. Can we do that? Verse 10, what's Boaz going to say? And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen, literally there, all the gate of my city, knows that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Boaz is a little overwhelmed here. <laughs> and you kind of get a sense of why he maybe had not made a move before this. Is two things. Number one, we read about the, there is another redeemer who has prior legal rights to this. But also, he seems to have thought she was too good for him. He's like, I, God bless you, Ruth. Says, yeah, of course, I, I liked you and I wanted to be with you. But look at this. It, apparently, he was older than her. Is he an old man? No, there are words that could have described this. But he was older than her to a degree that he thought, she doesn't want me. She wants some young buck. There's all these, all these guys out here, and everybody likes Ruth. It'd be foolish for me to even entertain ideas like that. That's why he says this last chesed, kindness, that last loving kindness, is greater than the first. Meaning, this is even better than what you did for Naomi by sticking with her. By you coming to me and bringing this to me and giving me the opportunity to do this, 
Not only are you helping her, now you're helping me too. And he says, I will help you. I'm willing to do this. But there is another who has the right first. He's a nearer relative. So we might say, well, why does that matter? Because remember, he's going to be bringing this territory, this property, into his own house. So there were legal ways of going about this. You couldn't just come in and say, well, we're fifth cousins, so I get to buy that. Well, I'm a first cousin. You know, I, get, I get to jump in first. So that also might have been why he didn't want to just do this on his own, because he knew that he didn't have the legal rights to it. But what you see is that after this encounter with Ruth, Boaz is eager and motivated to do his duty, which is exactly the design that God has for the relations of men and women. And the best example we get of this is in Judges chapter 1. In Judges chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, during the conquest of the promised land, Caleb said, remember Caleb? The old man who said, give me the mountains, I want to kill giants. He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. You might say, I don't like that. He, he was giving her away. Well, can you imagine a better tryout, ladies? And okay, whoever gets to kill a bunch of giants and conquer the city, he gets to be the one to marry you. And Othniel, son of Canaz, Othniel, Caleb's younger brothers, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, a very dry place, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So these are our two biblical archetypes for us here that Ruth and Boaz both fall into. Aksa inspires Othniel to great deeds. Whoever conquers a city gets to marry her. Say no more. <laughs> Let's go. Let's get in there right now. And then once they are married, she comes in and begins to make this place a home. She says, okay, yeah, we got the city, but we also need fields, right? They're up in the mountains. And this is the kind of thing that ladies tend to think about. We conquered the city. We're the mountain stronghold. That's great. Where are we going to grow our food? Oh, yeah. Go ask dad for a field. I'll ask him for a field. And then she comes out and says, hey, dad, also, uh, we're going to need water. <laughs> We're going to need water as well. You know, when we were looking for houses, Catelyn thought of certain things that I didn't think of. You know, things like closet space. That didn't really, you know, concern me so much, but now I'm glad that she thought of them. She was very wise in that way. So you see this. You've got a man inspired by a beautiful woman to do heroic deeds and then presenting them to her, you might say, and then she begins to use her influence to improve them and make them wonderful. That's harmony. Do you know what harmony is? It's a musical term. It's when you play two different notes that when you play them together, they sound beautiful. That's harmony. A woman has the power to call forth the heroic from a man. We see this all the time. How many times have you seen a young man kind of not really getting his act together, you know, didn't kind of dressed sort of sloppy in the same haircut he'd had since he was 15 years old, and you're like, man, is this kid ever going to amount to anything? And then she comes along, <laughs> and all of a sudden now, hey, did you do wash your shirt? <laughs> did you comb your hair? Oh, yeah, actually, I did. Did, did you get a job? Yeah, you know, I'm, what do you, well, I'm saving money. You're saving money? That's what happens. <laughs> That's what happens, is men encounter these women that say, I need to get my act together. Hey, guess what? That's the way God designed it. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage grows people up. So does having children and everything else. That these things, we don't, oh, I don't know if I'm ready. 
Okay, that's, that's fair in some cases, but in most cases, this is what will get you ready. My uncle used to say this. Yeah, I remember asking him about somebody, and so what is, he, what is he doing in his life? Oh, he just wants to, you know, be a rock star, wants to be a musician. Like, oh, boy, he goes, ah, well, it's okay. Things happen. Girls happen. <laughs> and we used to, so now we'll say that around my family. Yeah, girls happen. It causes young men to shape up and snap up and say, what am I doing wasting my time? I need, I need to make some money so I can have a house so that I can bring a woman into it. And then we can have some children. That's what this is for. But we also see the opposite of this. You can also see where a woman refuses to call forth the heroic out of her husband and instead chooses to belittle him and beat him down and disrespect him. And rather than a hero growing up in this place, what you see is a man that just feels beaten down all the time. Doesn't want to go out and do anything. Maybe only does it so that she'll get off of his back. And now there's resentment. Now there's bitterness. Now there's competition against each other. And then now what happens is sometimes a woman will be so hard on her husband that he will not live up to whatever standard she has in her mind and she'll say there see I always knew that you were a loser when in reality it might be your own influence that is causing that to happen to him a man as I said can conquer the world if he's got a good woman by his side but if the woman by his side chooses instead to crush his spirit it doesn't matter how many accolades he gets everywhere else it won't be enough Proverbs 12 verse 4 says an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. But she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. What's a crown? It's what makes you a king. What makes you a king? You got a crown on your head. You might say, what makes a man a king? Having a good woman, an excellent wife by his side. But the opposite of that, it's spiritual osteoporosis. The bones become weak and brittle and they break. Why do I keep drawing these out? Am I trying to make you feel bad, ladies? No, of course not. What I'm trying to say is you need to recognize the power that you have over the men in your life, especially your husband. It's important in the church to be calling our men to step up. And I, I do plenty of that. I, my conscience is 100% clear on that. In case I haven't, fellows, step up already, all right? But it's also, we need to make sure that we, and I'll say especially you older ladies, need to be make sure you are calling out the failure of the women in the church to do their part to support their husbands. You can't just look at yourself as somebody to be taken away and then pampered the rest of your life. It's a partnership. It's a relationship. It's a team. And I'll say for you women, don't wait let God show you what is glorious and wonderful about your husband. And then in kindness and love, begin to draw that out of him. Maybe your husband thinks badly about himself. Well, he just has no confidence. I'll see if I can steal a line from one of my favorite baseball movies. He's got no confidence. Well, give him some. You talk him up. You talk him up. So that when he goes out and his boss tells him he's a loser, he says, I'm not a loser. If that woman says that I'm awesome, then I don't care what this idiot has to say. We talk about this in the flip-flop with the ladies, right, gentlemen? Give your wife compliments so that when somebody struts along and starts complimenting her, she goes, keep walking, pal. I get that every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You think one thing from you is going to excite me? This is what we see. Well, verse 14, we'll finish up the chapter. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. This is one of the ways we know that there was no sexual intercourse going on here. Boaz was a righteous man. He said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring out the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held out the garment and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city 
And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Kind of funny. Literally what she says there is, who are you, my daughter? Meaning, are you still Ruth the widow, or are you now Ruth the wife of Boaz? Like, who are you now? How did it go? She told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So Boaz wants her to leave before it gets light. He cares for her reputation. Uh, we know from Hosea chapter 9, actually, that it was a common practice that harlots and prostitutes would gather around the threshing floor while the men were all off working and their wives and families were at home and start to ply their trade. So Boaz is like, I don't want, even though you haven't done anything wrong, I care about your reputation. So you can see, again, there's the partnership here. And he gives her a gift. It says he gave her six measures. It just says he gave her six of barley. Six of what? We don't know. So it's a, it's a lot of barley. And this part always kind of makes me laugh. I don't know why. Because it's just, you know, guys give gifts of what's available at the time. And I know that this is food and it, you know, it was good for them. But it's like, you want some barley before you go? <laughs> I got to uh, here, have some barley. You know, he's like scooping out the pile that they've they just been sleeping on. And just, I don't know, it just kind of makes me laugh a little bit there. But she brings home uncertain news. Now, we're happy that Boaz wants to help, but it might not be Boaz. And we all go, no, not, not some other guy we haven't met yet, this guy. But Naomi begins to gain hope. Remember, Naomi is learning every chapter something that she thought was gone forever. The first week, she learned that loyalty still exists. Last week, she learned that kindness still exists. And today, she learns, wow, love still exists after all. You know, if you've gone through a really hard loss of a husband or wife, or even a very hard breakup with a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it might be, it can turn us bitter. And he said, there's no, you know, love is just a waste of time. You don't want to live that way. You're just opening yourself up to get hurt. Well, now she's seeing, wow, that there's still, love is still out there. That's pretty great. Well, I kind of laugh when I see Naomi's assurance here. Because when it says wait in verse 18, it means to rest or even to sit down. So you can kind of get the picture that Ruth is like pacing in the house. Like, okay, he said he was going to talk to somebody else. I don't know, I hope he talks today. Because I don't think, it was, hey, hey, sit down, Ruth. Just sit down. Why did she tell her that? Because she says, He's going to take care of this today. Because after what you just told me, he ain't going to wait. He's going to get it done today. <laughs> it's actually, you can even translate this perhaps where instead of saying he will not settle the matter today or he will not uh, rest until he settles the matter, it could be translated he will not rest unless he settles the matter. Meaning, Ruth, he likes you so much, if this doesn't work out, he is never going to be happy again. Trust me, he'll take care of it. He's not going to leave us hanging here. And we kind of laugh at that because it's like, yeah, this is kind of how love and romance is, isn't it? It's that constant pacing and waiting and in my generation constantly checking the phone. It's been 30 seconds. Why haven't they texted back yet? And, you know, that whole deal. And, but this is a celebration of those things. Book of Ruth is just, it's a, it's a happy little story, right? That she comes home and she's all nervous and he, you know, he's out there and probably waiting until the sun comes up so he can get out there and take care of this. And we ought to celebrate these, these gender roles that the Bible gives us. Ephesians 5, 31 through 33, Paul writes, first of all, quoting from Genesis, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Do you like that? Marriage is a living parable of Jesus Christ and the church. That the husband represents Christ and the sacrificial love he has for the church, and the wife represents the ultimate and, and 
unshakable devotion and love that the church has and its submission to Christ. So verse 33, he says, Therefore, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects or even reverences her husband. And we, did, we spent a whole time last year talking about love and respect, that a husband typically's greatest need is to be respected. When they poll men and women, they say, Men, would you rather be respected or loved? Respected. And the ladies, would you rather be loved or respected? Well, loved, of course. There's different needs that husbands and wives need from each other, and we need to make sure that we're taking care of those things. Because men and women, you ready for a big 2024 shocking statement? Men and women are different. <laughs> men and women are not the same. And that's good. That's good. That's what we want. It's remarkable how as much people have pushed the weird gender nonsense, how there's a million different genders. What it has done is not provide a greater diversity. It has only led towards sameness and androgyny. It doesn't push things to the edges. It pushes them towards the middle. It erases the differences between men and women, which are glorious and good. And when we all come together in God's church and in our houses and our neighborhoods, it's an unstoppable force. Men and women united together, no one can stop that. I'll just say, I mean, I kind of just mentioned it, but I can't stress enough the damage that has been done to our ideas of male and especially female in the church through all the ideas that have percolated through our culture over the last years. This isn't a political statement. I have political opinions. I don't preach them from up here. I'm talking about the scriptures and the word of God. People that come to the word and say the way the Bible displays the relationship between men and women is inherently problematic and evil and must be deconstructed and rebuilt in our own image. That's, that's not advanced philosophy. That's just rebellion against God. But even when we don't get into the, the weirdness of, of all the, the so-called woke ideology and stuff, it still filters down that we have, instead of a, a marriage, a partnership, a relationship between two different people, you have two separate people seeking their own good and their own goals and saying, if, you, if you're going to get in my way, then I, I guess nothing I can do for you. What does that have any resemblance to what the scripture says about a relationship between a man and a woman. It's pride. It's pride. And since we've been talking about Ruth today and the positive example given by Ruth, the negative examples that are out there for our women, especially our young ladies to encounter, are incredibly dangerous, my friends. If you, if you are unaware of, of some of these things, you need to wake up and start paying attention. Because some of these phrases and some of these ideas that you pick up along the way and that sound good to you, might not actually be what you think they are. Especially as you see the, the proliferation of pornography. And you have, of course, pornography's soft on-ramp, which is Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok, which leads you right to those things. Then what we have is a woman, in order to feel good about herself, feels like she has to be imitating a woman who dresses a certain way to get lascivious reactions from men. Or she's got a strip herself of her femininity and be as masculine as he is. And that's the best way to be a woman. Both of those things are tragic because what you're trying to redeem in both of those cases, the beauty and the femininity of a woman, as well as the active and influential side of a woman, are both find their harmony in Scripture. Why do we go somewhere else to learn what God's already taught us? You're only going to get the lesser version. Will it be as immediately satisfying to your flesh? No. But I will say... Sometimes people would rather have a McDonald's cheeseburger than get a really nice filet mignon steak. Oh, this one's just as good. No, it's not. 
Well, it's going to satisfy me, yes, but when you walk away from that, how do you feel about yourself? Oh, what did I do? <laughs> That's the world's ideas. It's satisfying for a moment, and usually it's not even satisfying. What we're chasing is the hope that one day I'll feel really good about myself. And the promise keeps you coming, keeps you coming. It's like a Ponzi scheme. You're never actually going to get your investment, but they're going to keep on teasing you until someday you either crash or you wake up and you realize that the Lord knows what he's talking about. Learn Christ. Let go of your pride. And this is all, you know, to the ladies today. It's the book of Ruth, right? But it's good just as easily apply to the fellas. So make sure you're, you know, gentlemen don't get in the car and say, and that's why you... You could have a great conversation on the way home, or you could say, well, how can I help you? How can I help you? You'll blow your husband's mind. Say, like, ah, no, I don't, I don't want to talk about that. No, come on, please, let's talk about this. What's one thing I could do to help you accomplish what you want to accomplish? Do you even know what your husband wants out of life? Do you know? Have you asked him? I don't even think he knows. Well, if you haven't asked, you don't know. Talk about it together. What do you want? Do you want to work this job the rest of your life? Yeah, I'm actually, I'm actually okay with that. Okay, then what? Now, what is it you're, you're longing for and hoping for and seeking after? Let's kind of figure that, those things out together. Call each other higher. One-up each other in your kindness and love. Romance is a self-sacrificial partnership for mutual benefit. Self-sacrificial. As Christians, that's our, that's our chief and almost only virtue, isn't it? Because of what Jesus did. He gave himself up for us. Husbands, give yourself up for your wives. Another weird internet trend we ought to avoid. Like, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to do my best. She doesn't get any of this. This is my money and this is my thing. Oh, that's lovely. You, you must be super pleasant to be around. We, we say in our wedding vows, right? Keeping myself only unto you. Forsaking all others like Jesus did. Ladies, same thing. self sacrifice for your husband. This is what I want, but what does he need? What about my needs? It's up to him to take care of your needs. It's up to you to take care of his. What if he's not taking care of mine? Go back to 1 Peter. What did he say? You take the initiative, and you start doing right, and that influence has power. Like Ruth showed influence over Boaz. By doing something sinful? No. But by being entirely feminine and female, she was able to lead and help this man do what he needed to do. Women have an especially important part to play. They don't look just to themselves, but to the men in their lives. Ladies, I'll just say this, and I'm not just trying to make you feel good. Your beauty and your charm and the affection that you have makes you irresistible to the man in your life. So you have the power then to impart either strength or weakness to your husband, to your future husband, to a degree, to your sons and to your father as well. If you take out that romantic and sexual side of it, it's still true for all the rest of it. So which is it going to be? Are you going to impart strength or are you going to impart weakness? 